Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. David Sedaris, I think, spends seven hours a day collecting trash from the side of UK highways. Yeah, he walks like 10 t- millions of miles a week um, collecting trash. Him and Christina. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and The Wall Street Journal. This week, we take our first look at the beauty industry. And we quickly find it's a lot like the apparel industry. Lots of talk about sustainability, lots of greenwashing, and lots of waste. Celebrities like Kim Kardashian are rolling out skincare and beauty lines, but even though they say these products are eco-friendly, are they? And is this industry making any real progress towards circularity? We have questions. Then we'll look at Gucci. It has a new sustainability report, is talking about embracing circularity and regenerative agriculture, and just partnered up with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which I'm pretty sure is a first for the fashion industry. Sounds like a serious move, and we are here to dig in. Then we'll look at an innovation that had us all talking, plant-based nylon. That's right, biotech has come for the fashion industry, and instead of recycling plastic into nylon, two companies have demonstrated you can make the polymers for nylon out of corn and sugarcane. We wanted to know more, and we'll finish with things big and little that are pressing our buttons. I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Shilla Kim Parker and Rachel Kibbe. Hi, guys. Hi there. Hey, Christina. Shilla is CEO and co-founder of Thrilling, a marketplace for vintage powered by mom-and-pop shops. And Rachel is the founder of Circular Services Group, an advisory firm focused on circularity in fashion. Guys, before we get started, I just have to tell you that I'm going to run over to the Burbank Airport today and hop on a jet to Santa Monica for dinner tonight. Great idea, <laughs> oh, you huh? Too? Yeah. I'll meet you there, Christina. Okay, <laughs> for excellent. how many minutes? How many oh, minutes is that? your flight? Maybe, I guess that would be Under like... Under 15? Uh, oh, sure. Like maybe four? <laughs> Should we talk about why we're talking about this? <laughs> we all made impulse purchases of private jets. No, I'm just kidding. We, we were obviously talking about the Kylie Jenner controversy. She posted on Instagram a couple weeks ago showcasing her and her partner, Travis Scott's private airplanes. And with the caption, want to take mine or yours? And then I think adding further insult to injury, it was discovered that uh, the flight she took was 17 minutes. So probably, you know, saved about an hour in driving. And she's received, obviously, a lot of flack for this and, you know, the climate impact. She's been called a climate criminal. Has she po- apologized? I, don't, I haven't seen she, anything. She's not apologized. She's limited comments on the post, <laughs> which is the furthest I've <laughs> seen. I love acknowledging <laughs> any I of love the backlash. how the Kardashians rarely delete the Car- Kardashian-Jenner clan rarely deletes yes. photos. They just shut down comments. Right, exactly, exactly. They will not <laughs> <They're> apologize. Like, <laughs> they will yeah. not apologize. That's I mean, funny. It's, it's, been an, it's been a lot of hazing. And I think, you know, I don't know what you guys think. Obviously, it's justified. Private planes are 14 yeah. times more polluting than a regular flight. And I also right. just feel like the tone deafness in this moment of immense struggle and challenge for so many people um, around the world and kind of flaunting your wealth is obviously a turnoff. <laughs> But honestly, I kind of feel like she's an easy target and people are piling onto her and we yeah. don't have the same heat for others who are even more blatantly hypocritical about it all. And it's um, generally on women, too. Yes, it's really true. Yeah, always. It's always right. on women. You're not going to make me come around to feeling sorry for her, though. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, okay, okay. I just want to say it's not it's not just Kylie. It's private and public company CEOs. Um, flights right. are up this year. I think three point three million business trips last year, above pre financial crisis. Obviously, the most notorious of all, Elon Musk, Al Gore, and Bill Gates. And so I think that there's, we need to reserve some heat for them too. Let's move into our first topic. This week, we're adding a new topic to our roster, beauty. We've talked plenty about apparel, but beauty and wellness is a whole other market. And guess what? It's arguably worse. Lots of products are made from petroleum, way too much fat, single-use packaging, and all the same issues fashion has around ethical working conditions and a lack of producer transparency. But consumers love it, need it, one might argue. TikTok loves it, celebrities are cashing in, and it's growing every year. So before we get too far into this, let's lay out some definitions. When we say beauty, what are we talking about? Chilla? It's so funny. I should probably be the last person to talk about beauty because I use um, an old bottle of Clearasil to wash my face sometimes. <laughs> and Your skin sometimes, is so beautiful. It's working. Oh, thank, thank you, Christine. Why. It's the natural oils yeah. and, and dirt. <laughs> <laughs> FDA approved. Yes, exactly. If you were to ask me what beauty industry is, I feel like a lot of folks would have the same preconceived notion about it. It's what an elegant woman would use in her boudoir in a silk robe and and would need to apply with a brush, like anything anything in that category. Mm. But smarter folks than me um, at Harvard Business School define the beauty industry as cosmetics and fragrances, but also deodorants, hair care, oral hygiene, skin care. So basically anything that's a toiletry that we would consider a toiletry, an estimated size at $380 billion. I've seen estimates that are higher than that. Uh, Forbes puts it at $530 billion industry, with the U.S. as the largest beauty market, followed by China and Japan. Um, but I think, you know, one of the most interesting aspects of this, and I know we'll get into it later, which is, you know, the FDA defines beauty classically as products intended to cleanse or beautify, lotions, makeup, et cetera. And they do not require these products to receive any kind of approval or oversight from the FDA. So all of that to say, pretty loosely defined what is beauty, what isn't beauty. And honestly, for the most part, consumers are really left on their own. Perfect. Okay. Kim Kardashian has this new skincare line. It just dropped a few weeks ago. I understand it's pronounced skin, but it's pron- it's spelled S-K-K-N, all caps. So again, she's kind of working her Kim Kardashian KK thing and another product name. It includes a face cream, an eye cream, a cleanser, and a toner. And she claims that it's sustainable by offering up reusable packaging. Um, and it arrives in, her Instagram showed, showed it arriving in like cardboard packaging that gets torn opening. And then, of course, she pulls out these plastic bottles that are apparently a double plastic ba- bottle in each one of them. And just as fast as this appeared on social media, there were users who were quick to call foul on, on what she's doing. Sheila, can you fill us in on that story? What's the background here? Really quickly, basically, the claim that Kim and and Skin is making is, is, you know, just quoting their own words, grounded in an ethos of sustainability, each product is housed inside refillable bottles and jars. To further reduce our environmental impact, refills are packaged inside recycled materials and delivered to you inside compostable craft bags. Now, I think the issue that most folks took was using the language of sustainability and to talk about these bottles as refillable when really they're talking about there's a there's a the plastic packaging that the product actually is housed in like a pump container and then there is a outer shell that is kind of like a basically a case you can put that 
bottle in. And that's what she is saying and the brand is saying is reusable. So it's not actually, so it's basically two cases instead of one. And act, and, and a lot of folks are calling out the fact that, you know, it actually you're increasing <laughs> the amount of waste. Yeah, it's more. That's right, like exactly. The materials. What? Yes, exactly. That's, that's essentially the, the controversy. You know, it's interesting though, she, I, I'm sure she's done that because it, the outer shell looks more beautiful than the inner right. one, right? Because it's like fancier and, you know, beauty packaging is a, a huge part of the whole industry. Right, exactly. But we should, like, in fairness, let's step back because Kim is not alone in this by any means. There's a lot of claims out there. Um, I stumbled across something when I was sort of looking into this this week. Chanel has a new product called um, Number One De Chanel Revitalizing Cream. They are putting it out there. It's sustainable. They say it's made from 95% natural ingredients and uses bio-based, that's their words, packaging, like a refillable glass container. The cap includes, I'm going to use their words, biocomposite from camellia husks and wood byproducts, end quote. That's according to a Vogue article I read. Is this solving any of the big issues facing the beauty industry right now? And what are those main issues? Rachel, what do you think about this? Sure. I mean, from from what I know about the beauty industry, it faces a lot of similar issues to the fashion industry, um, which are many. <laughs> and I can speak more specifically to, to sort of the packaging and the um, challenges they're having around making uh, packaging more sustainable. Because of the importance of packaging in the beauty market, and you reference this, Christina, packaging is such an important uh, part of the marketing of beauty. How do you stand out in a sea of products having, you know, the exact same sort of compostable, recyclable container? It's it's very challenging. And the main way you sort of get attention on a shelf is by having complex packaging, Mm. um, which often leads to not being recyclable. But there's also issues around packaging for safety, stability of ingredients. So there's a lot of different sort of angles and challenges to beauty that um, are just more than just the surface of how does this packaging look. Where some some products can achieve either a water-free formula, plastic-free packaging, like shampoo bars, for example. Oh. Not all like skincare and makeup can do the same. Mm. Um, and and what we know about the circular economy for any industry is it's not just about if something can be reused or recycled, but also are the inputs um, becoming more uniform so they can go into the same recycling systems? Are we reducing all overall inputs, which Kardashian has not done? She has increased overall inputs. Mm. If you saw the the images and the videos posted online, even if the outer and inner shell are recyclable, it's a huge amount of inputs. We should be reducing plastics overall and also increasing access to, to, we should be using um, materials that have very readily accessible sort of recycling infrastructure or composting infrastructure already. We estimate there's about 121 billion units of uh, beauty packaging annually. Wow. It's an enormous waste problem. 121 billion. I'm trying to even 121 billion. You can't even really wrap your head around the scale of that. And and most are, you know, as we know, most things in general in any industry are not recycled. You know, at most 9%, 7 to 9% of plastics are recycled. And most beauty packaging is uh, plastics. But what makes beauty packaging like squeezable, portable, twistable, generally attractive, and what makes them stand out in a sea of options is creating lots of different types of parts mm. of even one individual product. Yeah. So then you get into the disassembly sort of issue. Recycling is all about aggregating uniform volumes of materials so you can sell it. 
It's a commodity, Hmm. right? So the (laughs) Chanel cream is actually sort of a good example of progress, and here's why. Cool. Yeah. So, so the outer is is glass, which is it, and it's meant to be reused over and over. Glass recycling is a whole other podcast. Just because it's bio-based or glass doesn't necessarily mean it can be recyclable, but it's it's durable, right? You have, and it's bio-based. It's a renewable. It's made from a renewable material, ostensibly, right? And then what they've done is they've added a small plastic insert that is curbside recyclable as the refill. So like when you oh, when cool. you're done with that insert, you can ostensibly rinse it out and recycle it curbside, right? And then the top is also made out of a bio-based product too, which is is better um, environmentally, you know, net from a net sort of carbon standpoint because it's made from a renewable um, material. Um, but this only is like progress if this is a cream that they sell over and over. Because if it was in a glass container and there was no plastic in there before, and people are only buying this cream once, mm. then you're just adding plastic to your product, which right. they didn't. So I'm assuming that Chanel made this particular product in this way because they know that they have many repeat customers. So I see a lot of misguided progress on the, on the market. For example, you know those pouches now you're seeing to refill like your right. dial plastic yes. soap? Yeah. So so that's a really good example of sort of some misguided progress because even though it's less material than your original plastic yep. soap container, right. those aren't recyclable curbside. Right. So oh. it's waste. So this is why the original container is, right? Right. It's it, ostensibly, yes. For the most part, um, generally those such those, a bummer. I use those right, and I have before too. And and so I actually this is something I looked into because I always had this weird feeling. I'm like this. I don't know what else in my recycling looks like this, and that's why it mm. doesn't. It can be recycled, but most municipalities don't. And so unless municipalities of which we know there's like twenty thousand different ones in the United States at yeah. least, um, all decide that they're going to start taking this and find end markets where they can sell it, then it's trash. So if we look at like Bath and Body Works, for instance, they're mm-hmm. standing up refill stations. So that's good, but only if you have very, very loyal customers who are coming back and refilling, and refilling. your product, yeah. right? So it works maybe in their, in their case, but you'd have to look at the overall numbers because a lot of times when you have refillable packaging, it's more durable and more durable. A lot of times it requires more input, more material import, more resources, and, and it shouldn't be just be up to the customers. It needs to be up to the companies to mm-hmm. decide how they're going to treat each individual product and their brands. So going back to refill models, aside from sort of the carbon cost of, you know, a customer going back to a store or mailing something back in, um, we generally know that with refill models, return rates are really low. Mm. They just, they're really low. And Alden Wicker um, is a journalist who's done some great reporting on this. Um, She did an article, I think a year or two ago for Vox on a company called TerraCycle. They are a company that's partnered with over 500 brands across verticals, including beauty brands like L'Oreal on hard to recycle packaging. And so I- Yeah, I see them everywhere. I'm not a beauty packaging uh, circularity expert. I get a lot of questions about whether TerraCycle is legit or not. They've come under fire for helping large brands greenwash. They've worked with Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, Gerber, L'Oreal, Toms of Maine, Clorox. 
In April 2021, Alden wrote a story revealing that they were being faced with a lawsuit, um, a lawsuit uh, from March of 2020 by an activist group. Um, and they, the lawsuit um, claims that they um, have a, had a lack of transparency on what's actually gotten recycled. Ugh. And an inaccessibility of return drop-offs and showing big numbers that out of context look impressive but aren't. <laughs> but what Alden pointed out is that um, is really been the question mark in most people's heads around really how much they're collecting. Um, she gave the example of a recycling program for Gillette Razors that at the time of her writing the story in April of 2021 hardly had any drop-off points in Brooklyn, one of the most socially conscious, densely populated areas of the United States. The CEO of TerraCycle, um, Tom Zaki, said not enough people had signed up to the program to establish these drop-off points. Oh, God, that's backwards. Right. So what she <laughs> says, that again puts the onus on customers instead of Gillette to set up and run collection points on their own time. Gillette's pro- program is really only free if you consider everyone's time and labor worthless, which I think is a great point that she made. Yeah, it is. And as a callback to another episode, Chili, you're going to love this. TerraCycle recycled 370,000 BIC pens in 2021. It all comes full circle. (laughs) Right. BIC, our new favorite (laughs) anti-hero. Yeah. God, this is sick, though, because like every single Walgreens, Eckerd's, whatever, sells all those products. The BIC pens and and the Gillette razors. And why don't they have a box? Well, even if they did, we have to talk about return rates. Mm. Even if there's access, participation rates generally are really low. If it's not in your household, if it's not in your municipal curbside recycling, things generally don't get recycled. How many Bic pens are you bringing back to your (laughs) CVS? Oh, my God. (laughs) Right? So except for Christina, who's going through her neighborhood and collecting (laughs) all the Bic pens in her neighborhood now. Those 370,000 Bic pens, Christina, I I, I hate to let you know, are only 0.02% of the estimated one point. Six billion ballpoint pens thrown out in the U.S. every year. So two hundredths of a percent of Ugh. the big pens were collected through this TerraCycle program, and that is the problem with telling customers that they can recycle hard to recycle things and that you have a recycling program for them when they don't bring them back. Mm. You're depending on them to stand up their own collection points and their own. Yeah, that's the problem with that kind of program. So, end rant. <laughs> If anybody takes away anything from all I've said, it things should generally be curbside recyclable. Mm, yeah, if In you're your going to design for circularity, right, exactly. not these mail back this mail back. Take it to your CVS BS, right? Because it just doesn't work. It just so, it's it. You know. I have a question. Um, in the apparel industry, there are organizations that are pushing for sustainability and circularity. They have ideas and resources that people are who are in the industry can turn to. And I'm just wondering if there's anything like that for people who are working in the beauty industry. Uh, Shilla, do you know anything about that? The organizations that I know of, there's this Leaping Bunny um, organization that, but they are kind of cruelty-free um, certification organization. Okay. So I know I know the beauty industry has that. Um, for organic, uh, FDA does not define or regulate the use of the term organic, but USDA does. So any beauty products that use that term have to comply to USDA standards. Well, that's good. Um, and then you know um, other other things that apply to all businesses, not just business, which is you know like uh, certifying for fair trade or B Corp. 
I think there are starting to be other associations and organizations that are starting to look into kind of regulating how sustainability is talked about and used in beauty. Um, but I think in general, as an industry, one of the challenges about it is that it's underregulated um, and underlooked okay. at. I mean, for example, I think U.S. bans about 30 ingredients from the beauty industry versus the European Union, which bans about 1,400. So we're really wow. far behind the rest of the world. Um, and, and again, this comes at a cost to consumers and planet um, because we're really left on our own. I mean, one really famous example. Do you guys remember that company, um, the brand Diva Curl? Yes. Mm, yeah. Vague. So, Actually, I had a roommate who swore by them. Yeah. So Diva Curl, for any listeners who, who aren't aware, you know, they were founded in the 90s. It was a very famous salon in New York City. They created this kind of curly hair pride movement um, yeah. when other folks and other Facebook salons. Pages yes. Um, you know, really advocating for the beauty of, of curly hair, for the care of mm-hmm. proper care and treatment of curly hair, um, things that kind of mainstream media really ignored or or penalized for felt like if you yep. had curly hair for yeah. a long time. And so, um, and they had this very successful product line. But um, in 2019, there were allegations that uh, Diva Curl's products caused hair loss um, and scalp irritation. Oh, um, Gosh. And um, in this past January, they, they settled a class action lawsuit with 58,000 claimants. Oh, now, oh, my God. In that entire time, they never issued a recall. Um, the FDA was completely impotent in assessing or remediating any injury. Oh. And I think this is just a, an example of how in the beauty industry, it's really, you know, buyer beware. It's really on the consumer, um, unfairly on the consumer, to find out um, what's in these products and um, what are the impacts on yourself and as well as, as the planet. It's funny. I think the real sort of Kardashian beauty story here might be one that's less recognized. In 2018, Courtney Kardashian famous founder of Poosh. Yes. It's a website that's dedicated to sort of natural fashion and beauty and lifestyle I like the way you said food. that. Poosh. 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 It's an onomatopoeia. Poosh. Poosh. It is. It is. And, and um, so she appeared before Congress uh, with the Environmental Working Group to pass a bill that would require cosmetics companies to disclose all ingredients and give FDA new oversight over harmful ingredients. And this bill has yet to pass. Yeah, and she notes go, something. Courtney. All the major beauty companies were in support of it. And it was they didn't really say who wasn't, but they did say that companies like Claire's may be against it who produce children's makeup. Uh-oh. And some of these companies are the ones who have come under, uh, under the most fire for having things like trace amounts of asbestos in children's makeup. Oh, yum. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty scary. So there have got to be some good examples out there, like in, in the beauty industry. Yeah. Let's wrap it up here and just put it out there. Um, what about, um, is it pronounced Kyerweiss? Kyerweiss? Kyerweiss. Kyerweiss. They have refillable, I- recyclable packaging. They've got good ingredients like beeswax that aren't petroleum. My friend worked for them for many years. Uh-huh. And I remember her saying that, you know, the founder really sort of meant it. And so I gave her a call this weekend and I asked her what she could tell me about it. And she said she, she stands by that. Um, and it, from what I could tell from the website, that's true. Okay. Um, because what they're, they do is they really rely on sort of a less is more approach, you know, as opposed to huge amounts of packaging that they claim are recyclable. It's, yeah. You can go on their website and you can see that they're using very little packaging to begin with. It's minimal. And then they're leveraging municipal recycling and composting. Okay. And they're honest on their website about what needs to be tossed. According to my friend, uh, sustainability is 
baked into their ethos, even when they got a major investment from from a firm. Um, the founder fought to keep her line sustainable. She works on formulations sometimes for over a year and will change formulas based on crop availability. And similarly approaches sustainability and packaging in the same way. They really do their best to be nimble and do their best with what's available now with curbside infrastructure. Some of the compacts uh, that they were using prior were more expensive. Uh, There were refills, but they were working on something for a long time, which is now available on their website. And you can go and see there's this there's a a reusable compact that looks like red red leather, but it's really paper. And so it can be composted at end of life. Yay. Uh, And the tin insert pops out with a pin and can be can be curbside recycled. I loved on their website, there's a magnet on that paper that they say has to be tossed. It has to be taken out and tossed. They're honest about what part needs to go in the garbage. So I really I really like that they aren't relying on mailback. They aren't relying on drop-off or in-store refill, even though I do think there's a place for in-store refills for things like dish detergent and maybe shampoo. I'd but things t- like t- there small for that. Com- cosmetics. Yeah. Have you guys seen this product by Humankind or this brand by Humankind? Mm-mm. I've seen it, but I don't know anything about it. So they're also, I'm curious what you're going to end up thinking when you guys look at it. Um, I, I, I haven't used them yet, but I'm intrigued by them. They're also, you know, very minimal packaging. Nothing is single-use plastic. And their toothpaste and mouthwash come in tablet form. And then and they, they're on a subscription refill method. So, you know, there is some packaging um, in the shipping. But I thought that was an interesting model to take a look at. I, I, I want to check them out. Listen, um, we wanted to tackle... A really big company that we all know of, Gucci. It's one of the classic luxury houses. It's extremely influential since they promoted Alessandro Michele to designer. Um, When they make a bold move, people notice. And Gucci just announced a strategic partnership with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. I had to read that like three times when I saw that. (laughs) Really out of like left field for me, but it's cool. Really? Um, To add circularity principles to its operations. Yeah, really, because, you know, the fashion industry has tended to operate very much in its own world, separate from sort of all the, the But EMF has been partnering with the fashion industry for a long time now, like on the oh, they have? Redesigns project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. did not know that. Okay, so it came out of left field no. for me, yeah. but nobody else. Um, so they're they're using the, the the foundation to add circularity principles to their operations. They've partnered with resale firms. Shola, this is your field. Um, and they're even funding a regenerative wool program in Patagonia. They also have an interesting side project called Gucci Art Lab, where they're incubating sustainable designs. So let's talk about Gucci. This is really interesting stuff. I've been watching Gucci for a long time. The brand is based in Florence, Italy. Um, Michele is, you know, he just, he replaced Frida Giannini, who had been there for many years, and most people didn't even know she'd been there. They thought that Tom Ford was still designing Gucci. Um, And Michele just sort of creatively... Um, lit the brand on fire. He has a poetic mind. He's super mm-hmm. inclusive. Um, a lot of his ideals have have bled out into the rest of the luxury fashion industry, by the way. Um, I certainly <laughs> saw that in L- Celine's latest collection. I don't know if you looked at it. But anyway, I feel like as much credit as Michele deserves, people don't pay as much attention to Marco Bizzari, who is the CEO of Gucci. He is the brains behind the business end. And he's a, he's a very curious, adventurous, fearless uh, executive and has put Gucci at the forefront of a number of initiatives that had been before him totally forbidden. I mean, he they were one of the first to accept cryptocurrency for payment. They've been collaborating with rival brands like Balenciaga and Adidas, Comme des Garçons. They, um, they adopted 
uh, people who were knocking off Gucci products like Dapper Dan um, and <laughs> Trevor Andrew, that. who's the artist behind Gucci Ghost. I mean, these are all sort of unheard of moves. And now they're they're sort of attack tackling this new era, which is circularity and sustainability. Seems that their aim is to reduce their very large carbon footprint. Um, tell us a little bit about this, Sheila. Recommerce resales for Gucci. It's it's a, an interesting move. What do you think? I agree with you, Christina. A lot of props have to be given to them as a brand and as a business, and particularly to the CEO Bazari. He's done a of um, a remarkable job, and so it doesn't come as a surprise that they've embraced resale in a way that other luxury players haven't. But just to take mm-hmm. a step back for a second, you know, he started <laughs> Bazari started his his career at Accenture, and then ran Stella McCartney and Bottega Veneta, and drove those brands to um, revenues and, and record profitability. And of yep. course, his tenure at, at Gucci, successful by all accounts, uh, more than doubling revenues. It's a ten billion dollar business now, um, and as you've pointed out, you know, took a relatively unknown um, McKelly, who's been incredibly successful atop his role. They've been very progressive, I think, in thinking about their role and responsibility as as a brand and as a platform. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they they did that pro-choice runway a couple of years ago where they yep. kind of celebrated um, women's right to choose uh, adorned on the models. Um, they've done a lot with sustainability that I know Rachel's going to talk about. Um, and then, of course, you know, I do think it's fair to mention also some of their missteps. Um, actually, I think the Dapper Dan even one is, is is one that started off as a misstep. You know, he he sent down an item in the runway that clearly copied one of Dapper Dan's designs and didn't credit <laughs> knocking him. Knocking off the knocking offer. Uh, yes, yeah. and then backtracked. This and gets then they, meta. And then they, it was, it was, I think they, you know, they did their best effort to uh, ameliorate that and collaborated with him, which I thought was a great move. But it started out as actually as a misstep. And then they, of course, they yeah. did the infamous blackface sweater. And and they sold a turban even later that year. That was that was 2019. But anyway, in resale, um, they've been pioneers, especially and I feel like on the luxury brand front. 2020, they launched a partnership with the Real Real. They basically hosted a shop within a shop, and they really promoted this idea of of reselling their products. Um, and they really embraced that idea. Um, last fall, Bazari personally invested in a menswear resale platform, Grailed. And again, I think that's that's kind of a, a a revolutionary idea, especially as a CEO of a luxury, a sitting CEO as a luxury brand. Um, the other thing that they've done, I, I think, to promote um, the their resale initiatives is honestly that they've held up their brand's value and the value of their products. Gucci is the most bought and sold product in the real real last year, and its average price is over two times higher than other brands. Um, wow. So in in many ways, they've done a really great job of supporting um, resale and the idea of resale. I think that's a really interesting point, Sheila. I just wanted to say because uh, I, I've heard from um, CEOs of resale platforms that the value of resale isn't just the durability and the craftsmanship and the beauty of a product, but it really is the brand value, to Sheila's point. It's the logo. Um, and that's what keeps it in circulation in a lot of ways. You know, the, uh, probably the best example of that is Hermes, especially with oh, the Birkin bags. You know, I mean, that's yep. like the primo. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think you know, if it, when, if you're a smart CEO, you know, first of all, resale of your items is happening anyway. This is kind of to the point you were yeah. making, Christina. Um, so it's only going to expand your business. You're never going to cut out that behavior. It's going to happen, and so you might as well have yeah. a, have a, have a piece of that action. Um, and then I think again, because they've they've really been very thoughtful about their role and responsibility as a fashion brand. I think just in, on principle, they want to promote the idea of sustainability and circularity. Yeah, what about the sustainability, the, the circularity aspect of this with the, with the MacArthur Foundation? Rachel, you have any thoughts? 
Yeah, so I, I sort of read their uh, their latest impact report from from front to back, and I was really impressed by the scope of their uh, circularity and sustainability ambitions. It really seems like they are looking at every single part of their supply chain and value chain and the impact on of it, um, and even have something called an environmental profit and loss uh, statement, which is something that I sort of need to understand better, but. This is, they're looking at this, their whole value chain in a really sort of advanced way. And when we think about this in context, it's a hundred year old company and it's a luxury mm. company and it's Italian. So it's it's slow, but it's very strategic. That's what you can expect from these types of brands. Um, it's owned by Caring and Caring is really interesting. They put a great deal of weight on sustainability for their whole sort of portfolio of brands. And they don't even use the HIG index. They have their own scientists. They have their own sort of in-house ways of measuring sustainability. This partnership with Ellen MacArthur Foundation is notable. Ellen MacArthur Foundation has been sort of a major driving force in circularity in the fashion industry for a while. They've done a lot of partnerships, including the Gene Redesign program, which partnered with over over 100 brands to create a circular pair of jeans. Uh, But this is their first major luxury house to become a strategic partner. Um, and so we're, that means we're going to expect to see a lot more in 2022 in terms of circularity from Gucci. Um, EMF, Ellen MacArthur Foundation, is a UK-based cross-sector nonprofit focused on cir- circularity research. They create resources and formal education around circularity across sectors, not just fashion. And um, they're, uh, the key focus areas of Gucci in this report were circular design and regenerative ag when we're talking about sustainability. And they claim to have started to think about circularity in the design phase rather than just end of life, which really excited me. So they're starting to think about how do we design these products for circularity rather than just like how do we resell them. And the sustainability report says all the right things. They say they're regenerating materials, they're wasting less, they're minimizing new resources, improving efficiencies of manufacturing, exploring partnerships to extend the life of goods. And so when I hear all of this, all these sort of buzzwords and all the right things in a sustainability report, I I look for who are your partners and what are you doing um, to extend the life of goods? Like, what are what are the actual steps you're taking to make this happen? Because I do know that it takes partnerships. And what I see is that they really are still in exploration. Um, the resale pilot with the real real it looks like it was three months, and now it makes a lot of sense that they're now testing sale of vintage on their own site. So yeah. they saw it worked on the real real, and now they want to own that. That's not when you think about it. That's great, but it's not quick. <laughs> like a lot of brands have been doing resale for a long time, and they're still sort of in the ex- exploration. How are we going to do this ourselves? Phase. And then in terms of design for circularity, I look for, if you say you're designing for circularity, I look for, are you designing with monomaterials? Because monomaterials are best set for recycling. Are you designing for disassembly? Are you designing with materials that can be recycled? Plus, who are your partnerships? And what is a full cycle of your supply chain to set this process in motion, even at a tiny, small pilot scale? And I did not see many in what they're actually doing yet. And these are luxury goods. So recycling, when you think about it, they're they're set up for resale. They have the brand value, the durability, right, and the resale value to really be set up for resale. So I think it makes sense that they're a little farther along on this. But if you're a house of this size and with this amount of sort of uh, eyes on you and power to be a leader 
in recycling, even though your goods are not going to be recycled for a very long time. Yeah, like two generations, right? right? I mean, honestly, you can resole those shoes. So you don't have to, you don't throw the whole thing away, just put a new sole on it. Yeah. Exactly. Very much the last stop. But as a leader and as a design leader, you should be already designing for circularity. Uh, Instead, what they're doing is focusing on materials that are recycled, like we've seen before. Um, Lower impact materials, using recycled materials. But in a Vogue UK article, they blamed the lack of technology to disassemble and the lack of technology for recycling for why they aren't designing for true circularity yet. And I just, I don't think that's quite an excuse. And they also mentioned that they are limited by the fact that they don't want their logo to be out on the market in terms of like, if you're going to upcycle, if you're going to disassemble something and upcycle it, they don't want their logo out on the market. And I think that's really old school thinking. But I mean, listen, this report is huge. Like they have covered every single part of the supply chain, what they're planning to do about it, which I think is really, really important. And their partnership with Ellen MacArthur Foundation, I think we're going to see a lot more in 2022 about really how they start to design for circularity. I think we can expect, and I'm hoping we're going to see a purse that's designed for disassembly. (laughs) If you're listening, design that purse for disassembly, design that purse for recycling. I mean, durability and resale, yes, but let's advance sort of the thought process around what it means to design for circularity. Especially, I mean, the logo, it's interesting because logo goods are often the poor, poor, most poorly made using the cheapest materials. Yeah. There's actually something else I want to say. It's what they are really focusing on is their own waste, sort of um, the first start place you need to start with circularity when you're looking at your brand's impact is like, where's the waste in your factories? And um, well, for especially them, for a luxury brand, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, because the, the truth is, this is not fast fashion. These are not this apparel is not made to be worn a few times and thrown away. It really, you know, oh my gosh, it's no. really, um, you know, it's built to last. One hopes that it would be a couple of generations till most of these things would end no, up being No, it's passed along in families. So what they're doing is they're focusing on their tanneries, waste source reduction. So in 2021 alone, they collected 500 tons of leather and textile leftovers from Gucci suppliers in the Florence region. And I caught up with a woman named Cassandra Kane, who runs something called the Zero Lab in Tuscany, um, which is walking distance from Gucci's headquarters. And she's working with companies like Gucci and, and factories and tanneries that produce, produce for luxury houses in the area. Normally, these factories and these tanneries would spend two to $3,000 a month disposing of leather waste. And what she's doing is she's having them pay for transportation, and then they get a tax deduct. Then they give her a tax deductible donation. That's 30 to 50% of what it would cost to dispose that leather. And then she has her own leather artisan training courses. Uh, She's working with over 150 local artisans. She has relationships with schools and universities. She sells this leather online. They're also working with the local prison system on rehabilitation programs for incarcerated people. There's this local circularity movement growing around uh, the luxury leather uh, industry in, in the area, which not only helps keep that waste out of the waste stream, but it also helps keep that uh, craft alive in the region, which I think is really, really amazing. That is really amazing. I've been to their factory in Paris where they're doing some of this stuff. They call it Petit Ash. It's like unbelievable 
the quality of the waste stream from the luxury industry. (laughs) (laughs) Like like, waste, quote, unquote, 400 crocodile skins that were not good enough for Uh your main product. Like, ah, it's extraordinary. That's, by the way, a rare thumbs up. Pretty much, I mean, not a total thumbs up from us on on Gucci and what they're doing, but, you know, I'd, I'd say that's a, that's a, a more positive outlook on what they're doing than than we've had for some other. They've laid out a plan. The the, the opposite of Sheehan, obviously. Um, I want to get to. I want to make sure we have a chance to talk about this because there's um, there's some tech that we're getting excited about. There's two companies, Gino and Aquafil. They've teamed up to create nylon out of plants. We've talked about nylon on the market that's made from recycled plastics, and this takes it. Uh, a really important step further. We know there are problems with the recycled plastics. But this creates the polymer for nylon out of plant-based feedstocks like corn or sugar cane. Gino has been active creating plant-based alternatives for cosmetics and hair care, beauty industry, now um, even cleaning products. And they're currently in the pilot phase for this nylon, but some articles that have come out in the last few weeks have been really promising. Nylon is a $25 billion market. It goes into a lot more than just apparel. There's car Carpets, cars, sporting goods, it's all over the place. I'm super excited about this. What do you think? Totally. I think it's really totally. promising. Yeah? Yeah. 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 And if you can get away from uh, non-renewable resources um, for any textiles, that's that's it's a good thing. There's still things to consider <laughs> always, yeah. and I could talk about them, but yeah. But at least it's not based on petroleum. Right. I was trying to understand, you know, what is the difference between... Um, this new product and eco nylon is it the, is it primarily the same thing? That's a really good question. You know, e- eco nil that brand, eco nil, right? Because that's been yeah. around for for a minute. I have to go back and look look at that. Um, what I do know is for any of these sort of bio based synthetic fibers, they can be very very different from each other. Dr. Ashley Holding has done some interesting writing on his uh, blog. He runs a sustainability consultancy, and he he notes that. Um, The thing about bio-based synthetic fibers is they are not necessarily biodegradable, as is often assumed. And many are, in fact, the exact chemical equivalent to petroleum-based synthetic fibers. So it's the same chemical. Oh. But what's different is the source of carbon contained. So getting away from non-renewable resources to renewable resources to create a synthetic fiber or a bio-based synthetic fiber is generally net environmentally positive. But what we don't know is about the microfibers. When it break down. Exactly. So it's not like it's not like a perfect solution, but it is part of a solution if we're trying to break consumption from fossil fuel extraction. And then for end of life, it doesn't necessarily mean that these materials are recyclable. What that tells us is when, when we hear a, what looks like a good news story, like plant-based nylon, there are still more questions to ask. And that's what happens right. at the end of life. Yeah. And I think, Rachel, you're touching on it. I mean, you, you, you talked about it a lot um, earlier, which is if part of the measure of sustainability depends on consumers' actions— then you really have to take that with a grain of salt because obviously right. in the execution of that, um, it's it's the devil's in those details. Yeah, getting people to change behavior or take alternate behaviors is very hard. Very right. slow, unless you dictate it with the law. Okay, mm-hmm. 
It is time to move on to our, this, I actually love this section. This is our what's pushing our buttons section. We're going to wrap up the show with a look at what freaked us out this week (laughs) in a good way or a bad way. Who wants to go first? I will say that my hot button this week is that it's literally hot, global heat waves, breaking records. So that is the hottest button this week. Um, And I want to also mention on a a lighter note that Benefer 2.0 is back. Oh, right. This is important. This is very this is important. This is very yes, important. Rachel clearly full attention now. And um, now it's no longer JLo. I'm it's Jennifer Affleck. But um, the thing that I want to point out that's relevant to us is that I loved that she wore a dress from 2004 from Jersey Girl. Hasn't like, she been wearing Reformation a lot too? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, saw something I just on that. saw something like she's like got the whole like Reformation era going on, okay. which is a very sustainable brand. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny, and we see that a lot on 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 Thrilling on our site. There's a huge interest in vintage and secondhand wedding gowns, um, which I love because I love that one too. Of the most wasteful industries. That's yes, amazing. exactly. Oh, yeah. incredible. And those gowns yes. cost fortune. Massive amount of money for a dress you wear once. So I love to see people rewearing a dress for their wedding day. Cool. Cool. Rachel, what's your hot button? So the Fabric Act, a bill that promotes reshoring and an end to piece rate pay, which would guarantee at least a minimum wage for garment workers in the U.S., has officially reached the House of Representatives. Woohoo! That I'm very excited about this. I, I know we should be. We should all working. be happy about this. Yeah, I mean, it affects. It, it sounds like a small amount of people, but it's very important. It affects over a hundred thousand garment workers, mostly women, working in the United States. Um, it was introduced by three women: New York Congresswoman Carolyn B. Maloney and Debbie Dingle of Michigan and Deborah Ross of North Carolina. It has wide industry support, including from the American Apparel Footwear Association and the CFDA. Having a trade association to support this bill that represents the fashion industry is really meaningful. But also there's another aspect to this, isn't it? I mean, I think it's it's not important that it's that it's got all these protections for workers, but I think it also is really supportive of bringing apparel manufacturing back to the United States, right? I know so many designers who would love to manufacture closer to home. They're so jealous of the Italian designers right. who can get in their car and drive to their factory as opposed to booking a flight to Bangladesh. Christina, what's pushing your button? I have one. Yeah, this actually came across my desk this morning. There's this brand, Nanushka, which is a great, it's a, it's a, it's a high-end fashion brand, Europe-based, um, you know, start, founded by a woman, designed by a woman. And I, you know, I, I really want to be supportive of them. But they just sent out a press release. They're so proud of themselves. And I know they mean well. But Rachel, listen to this. So they, they, they've got this product, this material, they're calling it Okobor, O-K-O-B-O-R. They're calling it their new alt leather um, and it's free from animal skin, which they're saying is, uh, a, you know, a great thing. Here's what it's made of. 56% recycled polyester and 44% polyurethane. They say it's produced using some kind of GRS certified dry process to reduce water consumption by 80%, which is good. But I feel like they just replaced leather with plastic. And it's two different kinds yeah, of plastics. And, and pee. Pretty much. Right? So. Mixing plastics, one of the hardest to recycle plastics, which is polyurethane. So this is where a really well-meaning brand 
just goes wrong by a lack of education, right? Well, I don't even know if it's a lack of education, but also they're, I think they probably think, well, we're reducing water intake tremendously to produce this material. It's better than the plastics we were, uh, the pleather we were originally using. Like everything, it's, 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 it's complicated. So I don't think that's the right direction, if you were to ask me. I figured that. I actually thought of you. As soon as I saw that press release, I was like, I'm going to run that by Rachel. <laughs> She's going to give it a thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> I think they should buy from scrap facilities that are recycling leather. Although yeah. people would come after me. <laughs> that is all for our show today. Please support us by following us on Twitter. We're at Hot Buttons Pod. Or send a link to friends and colleagues. Go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com is the way to do that. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shilla Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Villefranc and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We will catch up with you next week. Have we just decided that Courtney's the best Kardashian? <laughs> yeah, I'm, not will- no. I'm not willing to say that. <laughs> Chris. My favorite is Chris. Chris the, oh, yes. The boss. Chris, yes, Chris the boss Jenner lady. is yes. a boss. She's a boss. <laughs> Chris, call me. 